0: I recommend that you give your attention to God's Word, and I mostly recommend that today. But if seeing friends in Tanzania leads somebody to take a moment and write an email to a friend in Tanzania while I'm speaking, I won't be offended, and I might not even say that your priorities are out of whack. It's It affects me to see our friends Uh, on a video, and how cool to have Andrea participating in that way, right? Well, from now until Easter, um, we are paying attention to Jesus. Simple as that. We're paying attention to who Jesus is, what his mission was in this world, and how he accomplished that mission. There's hardly anything more important we could talk about or pay attention to. And here in this passage, which tells us about what happened late that Thursday night, on the night when he was betrayed. In this passage that tells us what happened late that Thursday night, Just a day before Jesus died on the cross. We get a unique glimpse into who Jesus was, what his mission was, and how he accomplished that mission. And I want to suggest that this story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane gives us a source of enduring hope. But the journey from where we are right now to experiencing that hope more fully is not a quick and easy journey. In fact, like any journey through suffering, it's a journey that requires a little patience. So before we get to the hope, I want to lead us in considering four important things that we see or that we hear in this passage. Here's the first important thing that we need to notice. We need to notice His sorrow. As Christians, we say that Jesus is fully God and fully human. In this passage... The full humanity of Jesus is fully on display. If you've had your own night of sorrow, then maybe uh, you can identify or maybe you understand what it's like to feel like it's important to have a few friends with you, but maybe not 12 of them at once. Maybe in this darkest of nights, just a few select friends is all you feel you can handle. Perhaps this is why Jesus asks only Peter, James, and John to go a little further into Gethsemane with him, leaving other disciples a few paces behind. The last time that Jesus invited only Peter, James, and John to come a little further with him is recorded in Matthew chapter 17 when Peter, James, and John witnessed what we call the Transfiguration, which is a picture of the magnificent glory of Jesus. Here in Gethsemane, however, Peter, James, and John will witness not the magnificent glory of Jesus, but the deep agony of Jesus. And in generations past, for centuries, when the people of God have endured their darkest nights, the people of God have often have often opened their Bibles to the book of Psalms and looked especially to the Psalms that we call the Psalms of Lament, in which we can find language for expressing our grief. Before God. Among those psalms of lament, Psalm 42 and 43 are some of the greatest hits, including this threefold refrain, "Why are you cast down? O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? In order to describe Jesus' emotions, on this Thursday night, Matthew 26:37 borrows language from Psalm 47 saying that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. In verse 38, Jesus borrows the language of Psalm 42 himself and says that he is quote very sorrowful, even To death. This is deeply and intensely emotional language. It's not just a hint of feeling a little down. This sorrow is killing him. Before we go further, I wonder if some of us feel surprised to read about the depth of Jesus' emotions. I wonder if some of us are surprised specifically to read about the depth of Jesus' sorrow. This world is full of Horrific tragedies, suffering, injustice, evil. And these tragedies, this suffering, this injustice, this evil all around us raises important questions, doesn't it? Uh, Just on Friday, I was in my class teaching at Aurora University. And one of the students, as we were discussing some important ideas, raised this problem, if you will, about suffering, injustice, evil, in a world that some people like me describe as being created by a loving God. I began by simply acknowledging that's a really insightful question. And it's a question that people like me who believe that the world was created by a loving God have wrestled with for thousands of years. In fact, in the past hundred years, as the amount of suffering and specifically as the amount of suffering brought on by humans has multiplied, many have found it more and more difficult to believe in the idea of a loving God. Uh, Many of you know I spend a lot of time reading and thinking about someone named John Stott who grew up in the early 20th century. He was about the age of My college students, when World War II was coming to an end, he came of age in an era when the news every day had reports of horrific suffering, evil, death, tragedy, and injustice, and specifically evil, tragedy, death, suffering, and injustice brought about by humans. And having grown up in such an era... John Stott famously said a number of times in his life, quote, In a world of suffering, I could never believe in a God who was immune to it. You understand the punch of what he's saying there, right? How can you talk about a God who is loving and all-powerful and all-wise When there is so much evil and tragedy and injustice in the world. John Stott took this question very seriously. And wrote a great deal about it. Not that he resolved all of the questions. In fact he himself was quite clear. That he hadn't resolved all of the questions. Even by later in his life. He goes on in that same Page That I was quoting from a moment ago, not only to say in a world of suffering, I could never believe in a God who was immune to it. He goes on to say there is today still a question mark against human suffering. In other words, suffering raises a lot of questions. But over that question mark. John Stott says we as Christians boldly stamp another mark. Namely, the cross that symbolizes His suffering with us, among us, for us. Our world is genuinely full of suffering, sorrow, injustice, and evil. How can we believe in God? Perhaps only through meeting Him, In the face of Jesus Christ, who himself knows what it's like to say, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. When we bring our questions about sorrow, suffering, injustice, and evil to Jesus, We may not find all of the answers before the sun goes down today. At least that's been my experience. But when we bring those questions to Jesus, we find a sympathetic high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he himself suffered when tempted. As Hebrews 2.18 says, first thing that we need to see in this passage is the sorrow of Jesus. The depths, the reality of His emotions. But as Christians, when we encounter deep emotions like sorrow, we have a number of questions we can ask And those questions are not always, how do I get over it? How do I stop feeling sad? These are the questions maybe instinctively we want to ask in the middle of our sorrow. But you may notice in the psalm that I read a moment ago, the question isn't, how do you get over your sorrow? The question to one's own soul that we're taught in a psalm of lament is, why? Why am I downcast? There are other questions to ask and other things to pay attention to. In the case of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we notice the depths of His sorrows, and as we ask the question, why? Why are you sorrowful, even to the point of death? It brings us to a second thing that we need to notice in this passage. It's His cup. You may notice in this passage there is this reference to a cup in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face. Which might just mean that he kneeled politely. But I don't think when it says he fell on his face, it's a euphemism for kneeling politely. As he describes The depths of his sorrow, I think he is collapsing in grief. Maybe you or a loved one has been in that place of being so deeply sad that your knees can barely hold you up. Here Jesus collapses to his face. And why is he so sorrowful? He prays, my father, if it be possible, let This cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Which raises the question, what is this cup that Jesus is referring to? What is Jesus seeing in the world around him? What is it that Jesus sees set at the table before him? That leads him to be very sorrowful. Try to keep my answer simple and direct and concise here. If we go back throughout the Hebrew Bible. We find many references to a cup of God's wrath. A cup of God's justice against Human evil and sin and injustices. You see, we were mentioning a moment ago this problem that we see around us of suffering, injustice, evil, and so forth, brought about specifically by humans. And it keeps going on and on and on. And sometimes it amplifies and amplifies to the point where we find ourselves saying, God, do you even care? God, are you ever going to do anything about this? And the Bible tells us quite clearly that God does plan to do something about it. He does plan to do something about human sin and evil and injustice. And this plan to address human sin, evil, and injustice is described sometimes in Scripture as God's wrath. Not meaning at some point in the future He might fly off the handle and do impulsive and wrong things in His anger the way that human wrath might work. But meaning that our God who describes Himself as slow to anger has been patiently observing and enduring human sin, injustice, and evil for centuries. But we need to be careful not to mistake his patience for indifference. He is going to do something about it. And often, what he is planning to do about it is pictured with the picture of a cup full of his wrath against human injustice, evil, and sin. For example, Jeremiah chapter 25, one of the prophets says, So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink it, including Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his servants and his officials and all his people, After them, the king of Babylon shall drink it. Here's what I want to pay attention to here in this backdrop of this idea of the cup. As Jesus feels sorrowful to the point of death, as he sees the cup of God's righteous wrath against human sin, evil, and injustice in front of him, why is he so deeply sorrowful to the point of death? Will notice how serious this cup is. Sometimes when we think of this idea that on the cross Jesus died for our sins, sometimes we start to get an idea of how big of a deal that is by considering for a moment that Jesus was there dying on behalf of my wrongs. The ways that I have harmed others. The sins that I have committed in secret. The motives that have twisted me away from God. The thoughts that have shaken their fists against God deep within my own soul. Sometimes when we think of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, we only think of my sins for which He was paying a price there on the cross. But notice how full this cup is what Jesus was preparing to do on the cross was not only to die for my sins and my wrongs, but to die for all the sins of Jerusalem and all of Israel, of Pharaoh and all of Egypt, of Babylon and all of the Babylonians. And so on and so forth. Listen, as Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, considering the cup of God's judgment that sits ahead of Him, it's not just God's judgment for my sin, it's God's judgment for our sins, and not only ours, as the New Testament would say, for the sins of the world. And So here is Jesus. In the garden of Gethsemane, collapsing to his knees, falling with his forehead into the dirt. Aware that something lies ahead, that he must deal with the cup of God's wrath, not only for me, but for the sins of the whole world. And how does Jesus respond To seeing this cup of God's judgment against the sins of all the world set in front of him. It brings us to another thing we need to notice here in this passage. We notice his sorrow, we notice his cup, we also need to notice his prayer. Sometimes when we think of Jesus praying, I think we have the wrong picture in our minds. And when I say picture, I might literally mean picture. When I was growing up, there was a painting that I sometimes saw of Jesus. Uh, One of those paintings depicting Jesus as having long, beautiful, curly hair. Blonde. And in this painting that I often saw in my childhood, Jesus is depicted as praying With kind of a dark backdrop, so you get the idea, this is Jesus praying in a dark place. But how does Jesus, with his long, blonde, curly hair, pray in a dark place? Well, first of all, there is a beam of light just softly glowing over his face. And there is a peaceful expression on his lips. Edges almost curled up, as if to say, I can't wait for what lies ahead. And the expression in his eyes is so peaceful as to make a Stoic proud. If this is our idea of what Jesus looked like when he was praying, the Scriptures tell us we're wrong. When Luke describes Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells us many of the details exactly the same way as Matthew does, but he adds one note to it in Luke 22:44. He says, "In being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat in the garden of Gethsemane became like great drops of blood falling down to the grounds." You understand, don't you, that what goes on in our souls can affect our bodies? Here is Jesus in the depths of sorrow. Praying his heart out. And as he prays his heart out, his experience is not a warm waft of light and a gentle smile and peaceful eyes. His experience is sweat that comes out like drops of blood. This experience is so... Deeply distressing. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament describes the prayer life of Jesus like this. Now, I don't know if the author of Hebrews specifically had in mind what happened here in the Garden of Gethsemane that we're reading about today. In fact, as we read the book of Hebrews, it sounds like the book of Hebrews is describing the normal prayer life of Jesus or the prayer life of Jesus over time, not only here. But listen to this description. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Not with a peaceful, easy feeling. But with loud cries. He offered up prayers with tears. To him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. So as we read not once, not only twice, but three times in this passage that Jesus goes back to praying. Let's not make the mistake of thinking this is Jesus just peacefully uttering nice words with not a care in the world. Instead, we need to hear Jesus crying out in anguish with tears on his face. Praying and praying and praying. As it says in verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, listen, this is not the main thing that we are meant to take away from this passage as far as I can tell. But I think that there is something here of an example for us to learn from. The book of Matthew wants to tell us about Jesus and what he has done to, quote, save his people from their sins. Borrowing that language from the word of the angel back in Matthew chapter one. But the book of Matthew is also teaching us what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make disciples of Jesus. And as we learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or to make disciples of Jesus, part of that is learning to pray. And part of what we learn as we listen in to Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane is that we learn, we, we discover that we need to learn to pray not only when we've got a peaceful, easy feeling and a smile on our face and a grin in the corners of our eyes. We also, if we're disciples of this Jesus, we need to learn to draw near to God when all we've got are loud cries of anguish and tears dripping down our cheeks. And from our Lord Jesus in our days of deepest sorrow we learn that it is right to come to God not only when we've got a smile but especially when we've got tears. If your parents taught you that you need to stop crying before you pray your parents taught you wrong. We need to learn to draw near to God With tears on our cheeks. Saying, Father, if there's any other way, please. And yet. And yet, and yet. Jesus also wants us to learn to pray your will. He does want to invite us to come and pray and pour out our hearts before God. There are times when Jesus, teaching about prayer, will say things like this. Ask whatever you wish. So go for it. That's what Jesus tells us to do. But sometimes as we draw near to God with tears on our cheeks and with anguish in our souls, we pour out our hearts before God and we say, God, this is what I'm asking for. But Jesus also wants us to learn to pray, your will be done. Do you know how I know that Jesus wants us to learn to pray, your will be done? Because these are exactly the words that Jesus taught us to pray when the disciples came and said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? In fact, I don't know if you realized it or not, but we prayed these words earlier in our service together. Earlier in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven is not only Jesus who has this special connection with God such that He can draw near to Him in grief and say, you're my Father, aren't you? To so all of us, our Father in heaven, we draw near with tears on our face and we draw near alongside Jesus to one who we call our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And here's how Jesus teaches us to pray, even on those days when there is anguish in our hearts and tears on our cheeks, and like our Lord himself, we find ourselves collapsing to our knees and just crying out and saying, Father, if there's any other way, but not as I will, your kingdom come, your will We need to understand something about the depths of Jesus' sorrow. We need to understand something about the seriousness of this cup. We need to understand something about his prayer. But perhaps more than anything else, I think what we're meant to see here is something about Jesus himself and his faithfulness. There are two different literary features of this text. Some of you who are in high school English classes are mad at me for saying literary feature on the weekend. I apologize. But there are two literary features of this text that draw our attention to the faithfulness of Jesus. One of them is the simple repetition. You heard it as we heard Andrea reading. He prayed. And he prayed again. And Matthew, like in case we're having trouble counting to three, Matthew counts for us. And by the time we get down to, uh, then by the time we get down to verse 44, he says Jesus went away and prayed for the third time. Are you getting the clue here? He prayed and he prayed and for the third time he prayed. And these aren't like two-line prayers. When Jesus comes back one of the times, He says, has it only been an hour and you've fallen asleep? He may have just spent three hours praying and praying and praying. Notice the faithfulness of Jesus in this repetition, this endurance, this perseverance. He doesn't just say a prayer once. He prays and He keeps on praying. But there's another literary feature here in this text. And it's a literary feature that we might call contrast. You see, there's something else going on in these verses in addition to Jesus' faithfulness. It's set in contrast with the disciples' sleepiness. He brings these disciples with him. He asks them to pray. And then in verse 40, he comes back and he says, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, and again, and again. As much as we see in this passage the faithfulness of Jesus, we see again and again and again the sleepiness of the disciples. It's an interesting depiction of the difference between Jesus and his disciples, isn't it? These disciples who had followed Jesus now for years. Who had heard all of his teachings. Who had been a part of his healing ministries. Who had gone out representing Jesus to others. And who were going to go and continue representing Jesus in the future. In this hour of sorrow, how faithful are these leaders? Not very reliable at all. Which is part of a whole theme in the Bible. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. God created one man named Adam and gave him a simple word of direction: don't eat of the fruit of the tree, or you shall die. What does Adam do? Does he endure in what God has called him to do? No, he fails. And we fast forward in the storyline, and here is God's man carrying God's promise. Abraham receives the promises of God in Genesis chapter 12. And pretty much the very next thing we read about Abraham is how he failed spectacularly. And we go on and we find this anointed king over God's people, David. With massive promises that he can barely fit into. And there are so many good things about David. But what else? There, is, there are such massive failures in his life as well. And then come king after king, prophet after prophet, priest after priest. All of them beset with weaknesses and failures. Generation after generation. Those who hear God's word those who even speak on God's behalf, those who represent the Lord in this world, prove not to be faithful, but prove to be fickle. Perhaps this is an echo of something that you've felt in your own life as well. We sing it in one of our hymns. I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And in a world in which we find ourselves feeling like if it's up to me and my faithfulness I don't have a whole lot of hope. I mean, we can make all the promises that we want to God. In fact, that's the backdrop of this very passage. If you were here last week, you heard it. The disciples are all one after another saying, Lord, you can rely on me. Peter, James, and John have recently spectacularly declared their reliability to Jesus. James and John, when they say, oh, we're ready. To sit at the right hand and the left hand of the father. We're ready to drink the cup you drink. Peter, when he says, oh, no, Lord, I will never deny you. Peter, James and John, these three who are brought deepest into the garden of Gethsemane have made their most spectacular promises. Lord, I'm going to be faithful. But just like in our own experience, sometimes our loudest promises of faithfulness to God sometimes don't even last through the night. What hope do we have then? In a world where we can't trust ourselves to keep our promises to God? And in a world when so many leaders have failed us, Maybe leaders in churches you've been a part of or ministries. Look, like Peter and James and John and like David and Abraham and Adam, generation after generation, Christians are not those who say, if it's based on me, then I've got plenty of hope. Just the opposite. Generation after generation, Christians are those who say, My hope is all in Jesus. I've not been faithful. I've not been as faithful as I intended, which isn't an excuse to go and throw our lives further and further into things that we hate. It's not an excuse it's just being honest who among us has been faithful to the end but thanks be to god here in the garden of gethsemane we discover that even though disciples of jesus are not faithful to the end even though disciples of Jesus are not trustworthy, even though our own record of faithfulness would not be enough to give us hope, thanks be to God, there is one. There is only one, but thanks be to God, there is one who was faithful to the very end. He walked with the Lord all the way into the very depths of sorrow. He was tested to the very limits while, be, while suffering. And unlike us, He is without sin. He remained faithful to the very end. The book of Romans tells us this good news about Jesus, contrasting Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus and the failures of Adam, saying, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And here in this passage, as we see Jesus suffering to the very depths of sorrow, as we see Jesus preparing to take the cup of God's wrath for all the nations of the world, And here in this passage, as we hear Jesus praying, if there's any other way, but your will be done. What we see over and over and over again demonstrated in front of us is this great contrast between disciples who are unfaithful more often than we'd care to admit. And Jesus who is more faithful than we'd ever even imagined. All the way to that moment when he comes and wakes his drowsy disciples for the third time. And he says, see, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. What an ironic comment. This title, Son of Man, refers to a human king of all kings. According to Daniel's prophetic vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Here is the human king of all kings, the one who will reign over all the nations forever by decree of the ancients of days. And he says, Do you know how I'm going to accomplish that kind of all authority has been given to me? Not with swords and violence. Not with an overthrow of the government in Rome. I'm going to accomplish that kind of salvation for the whole world through my own sorrows. Through drinking that cup myself on the behalf of many. Through persevering by prayer all the way through the deepest and darkest of sorrows. To the very bitter end. What will we conclude? I think a fitting description of what we hear described in this passage comes from Isaiah 53, verse 4, which says, Surely he has carried our sorrows. And listen, because he's carried our sorrows, we understand he can stand in solidarity with us. In fact, I might say that differently. He can collapse in solidarity beside us in our own darkest nights. Because he has borne our sorrows, we understand the depths of what that means. That's not just dying for my sins. It's drinking dry the cup of God's wrath against countless millions from every nation. Because he's carried our sorrows, we can learn from him this pathway of endurance through prayer ourselves. But because he bore our sorrows, we have this assurance, this relief, this hope that there is a hope for us beyond ourselves. There is a hope for us more sturdy than our own faithfulness to our commitments. There is a hope more enduring than our faithfulness to him. And what is that hope? It's that his faithfulness through the deepest of sorrows truly is our enduring hope today. And so, if you arrived feeling one way or another a little bit unfaithful to Jesus, feeling one way or another weakness in the midst of your own sorrow, feeling one way or another your own proneness to wander, let me invite you to come. And collapse fully into the arms of Jesus, who says, I've carried your sorrows. And find that hope, that rest, that strength today of agreeing with millions around the world who have sinned and suffered and straight, and yet cry out with hope today surely he has carried our sorrows I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward